This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So to get us going, Jean, because I now know a lot about you, and you're really cool. <laughs> and you're from here, and you have family here. So tell us a little bit about growing up here, going to college, how you ended up at the LA Times, but especially about your writing career, because it's really interesting. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me, Mary. I'm, it's such a pleasure to be here, to be a part of the opening of, of this amazing space, this connective tissue between our community and the, the Tijuana community. As somebody who grew up on the border, crossing back and forth, you know, this place truly means a lot to me. I think that what you're doing is very special, and I'm so glad that you guys are all here to celebrate that with us. Um, so a little bit about me. I, I was born and raised in San Diego. My dad is an immigrant from Mexico. Uh, my mom is from Puerto Rico. And my mom gave me permission to share with you guys a little love story, which is like a cross-border love story that kind of explains why I'm so like drawn to cross-border issues aside from the fact that I grew up here. Um, so my mom, she... She put herself through medical school by joining the National Health Service Corps when she was in Puerto Rico. She did her residency in New York. And on her first day in San Diego, when she was looking for the hotel where she was going to be staying on her way from the airport, she was driving south on the I-5, looking for an exit that was only on the I-805. <laughs> and she just kept going south and south, and she's looking for it, and she's looking for it, and she can't find it. And all of a sudden, she just sees this big sign that says, entering Mexico. And she's like, oh, my God, because, you know, she, she didn't have a passport. She doesn't know, like, as a Puerto Rican woman, if she ends up in Mexico, is the U.S. going to let her back in? Like, how does that work? Uh, so she was very nervous, and she pulls off onto the last U.S. exit. She, she barely makes it. Um, and that's actually where she met my dad. <laughs> She pulled into a, a gas station, and my dad was fixing his car. He had some kind of car issue, and she asked him for directions, and he was like, oh, it's way too complicated. I'm going to have to get into the car with you and show you how to get there. And for, for some reason, my mom was like, all right, hop on in. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I exist, basically, because my mom like got lost and almost, almost crossed into Mexico. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've always been drawn to cross-border issues because of the fact that I grew up going back and forth to Tijuana with my dad, my grand, my abuelita who's here. We, we, my dad would take us to the to the beach down there, to the different restaurants, and I just, I don't know, I just, I just grew up with that cross-border existence. Um, and I, but I went to a school, a private Episcopalian school um, in Chula Vista, where it was against the rules to speak Spanish. So even though it was my first language, I slowly sort of, I mean, if we were caught speaking Spanish, we had to go to detention and we had to write, I will not speak Spanish. I will not speak Spanish. I will not speak Spanish a hundred times. So I internalized this idea of my native language as being bad, um, as, as being something that I associated with delinquency. And for, for many years, I, I was just sort of striving in a way towards, um, towards assimilation and, and towards 
you know, being an American and, and sort of detaching myself from my Latina identity in a way that I didn't realize was very destructive and created a rupture between myself and my abuelita, you know, my ability to have in-depth conversations with her sort of deteriorated over time. And then when I was in high school, I, I stumbled across The Devil's Highway, a book by Luis Alberto Urrea about a group of Mexican men who die trying to cross the, the militarized border. And that book is just full of Spanglish. It, it made me realize for the first time how beautiful my na native language is and that it can be made into art. It made me want to be a journalist in Mexico. And that's kind of what set me off on, on my path is I, I just decided I, I wanted to tell stories about Mexico. I, at the time, I started to take the trolley um, and just go down to Tijuana all the time and, and, and started reconnecting with that city that my dad grew up in. Um, and ultimately pursued a career as a correspondent. My first job was in Mexico City covering commodities for the Wall Street Journal. Um, wrote a book about my dad, uh, which I can talk to you guys a little bit about. Uh, my quest to understand my father, who in my childhood began to struggle with some mental health and substance abuse issues and for many years was absent from my life. And my pursuit of him into Mexico is sort of what this, my first book is about. And then, um, then I was working in public media here in San Diego at KPBS, which was amazing, covering immigration right as immigration uh, sort of exploded on the national stage right before Trump. I started at KPBS a few months before Trump announced his candidacy by promising to build a border wall. And this was at a time when I was already covering the devastating consequences of border militarization. I was trekking through the smuggling routes at the border and coming across human remains after human remains after human remains. And I was just, it was stunning to me that this reality was so close to the place where I had grown up. Ultimately, I wrote about Stephen Miller, Trump's senior advisor, and I am now an opinion columnist at the LA Times. And you and Raphael, my good friend and colleague, are going to have an exciting conversation. And Raphael, like me, said, please don't tell them everything about me. So what I will tell you is uh, Rafael Fernandez de Castro, I don't have to say the other names, he told me, <laughs> is the Feldman Endowed Professor of Mexican Studies at UC San Diego in the Graduate Policy School, and he runs the U.S.-Mexico Studies Center. And Rafael has worked in government in Mexico. He's taught at many distinguished American universities, and it's extraordinary to have him here at this time, he has an office next door to mine, uh, <laughs> along with uh, his good friend and colleague, the president of CETIS University in Tijuana, Fernando Garcia. And we're scheming to do all kinds of arts and cultural and education programs together in this space to connect this wonderful binational region. So, Rafael. Wonderful, Mary. Uh, well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, today is Cinco de Mayo. It's a wonderful celebration. This is the Latinx, uh, Chicanx celebration in the U.S. It's wonderful. This is like the uh, uh, March uh, uh, 17 for the Irish. This is our day. So you all should be drinking margaritas, tequilas, and, and mezcal, by the way. <laughs> 
First of all, I would like to, uh, to welcome you all. Uh, I, I, I do feel that this building gets UCSD closer to the border, and, and, it, and it is. So this is our mandate. We have to get closer to Tijuana. Uh, it's about uh, the binational culture here. And above all, I would like to welcome your family because uh, it's, very, it's very telling that there's four generations of Del Valle Guerrero women here. So <laughs> let me introduce Ana Luz Del Valle, uh, Jean's grandmom. Welcome. <laughs> Carolina Guerrero, Jean's father, paternal grandmom. Welcome, please. <laughs> Janet Del Valle, Jean's Mom, welcome, doctor. <laughs> and we have Saraya, which is Jean's niece. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> this is so beautiful, and this is a family, and we, want, uh, we really want to create a community here, so, so you're welcome, and I hope this is going to be the first time of many nights that you're going to spend here with us. So, Jean, uh, let me start by... Uh, uh, fairly, uh, I will say, not an easy question. I will put it this way. They say that childhood is destiny. You didn't have a, an easy childhood. How come were you able to endure all of, the, all of those obstacles? And nowadays you're a very accomplished and very young writer and journalist. Thank you so much, Rafael. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you. And that's a, such a good question. Um, I mean, I can talk a little bit about how it was difficult, but the reason that, you know, that I'm here today speaking to you all is just because I have such strong women in my family. I mean, to begin with, my mother, who just sacrificed so much for me, and my, my abuelita Carolina, my abuelita Coco, like, they just, they are the reason that I am, that I've been able to, to be the person that I am. Um, you know, my dad, uh, I, I love my dad so much, and I wrote my first book about him because of how many years I spent sort of chasing him in this self-destructive pursuit. Um, he, he's an amazing, amazing person. Like, he, he loves me, and he was, he was so supportive of me writing this very difficult book, which most, I feel like most people would, would not especially men who have been raised, you know, with machismo, like they wouldn't want their daughter writing an entire book about them. Like, what do you, like, they would just not be cool with that. But my dad was, was very cool with that. He's like, I understand that you need to do this for yourself. And he's just always been so supportive of me. And so I appreciate him so much for that. And also, like, I, I feel like I have the best of my dad and the best of my mom, you know, like, my mom just gave me this incredible diligence and like work ethic and just this like never give up mentality. And, and my dad just gave me this sort of like skepticism for institutions, this desire to push beyond the known, this like kind of restless curiosity that drives me as a journalist. Um, so there's that. There's the fact that I've, ha I've been raised by such strong individuals who I'm so grateful for. Um, and the other part of it is just writing. Like writing has been a lifeline for me ever since I was a little girl. 
I, I always turned to writing. Uh, I started writing personal essays in high school uh, where I was exploring what I believed was my father's schizophrenia. He believed that the CIA was, was sending voices into his head and persecuting him. And for a time, I thought that, you know, maybe I was going to end up like him. And, and part of it was me just sort of pursuing him in that self-destructive way. But I used writing as a, as a very therapeutic tool to try to analyze what was going on. And, and I had a great English uh, teacher in high school who told me, you know, you, you can use writing to turn difficult challenges into really beautiful gifts. And he gave me a copy of Mary Carr's The Liars Club, which is a really beautiful memoir. And he told me, you know, someday you, you can do something like this. And I think that's, that was a really beautiful gift. Thank you for sharing. I, I believe that to be a writer, you really have to have the, 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 the ability and the courage uh, to express your feelings, uh, to express your soul. Uh, and, uh, and you did it in, in, in the Crocs. Uh, so, I mean, the title is very telling. Why this title? Could you, uh, I, my wife has been, Patricia is here, she's been getting after me the last three nights because I've been reading until very late because once you start reading the Crocs, you cannot really put it aside. It's wonderful. So why, the, why this title, Jean? So the title is, is sort of meant to embody the, the border crossings that my father was always embodying, like himself, the crossings between, literal crossings between countries, between madness and sanity, between life and death, uh, between substance abuse and sobriety. And, and also that book, in a way, aside from being an effort to disentangle myself from my father, it was also driven by a desire to save my dad from himself. And so I learned about how sailors who are lost at sea use constellations to find their way. And I, I learned of the constellation Crux, which is in the shape of a cross. And I chose that title largely because I wanted the book to serve as like a, a, a guide um, to, to sort of bring my father back to my, my reality. Um, and I knew that that was purely symbolic and that there's nothing, uh, that there's nothing really literally real about that magic that I was hoping to imbue in the book and, and explore in the book. But I, I just wanted to capture that symbolism and like use that symbolism to convey my desire to, to have my dad closer, closer to me. Thank you, Jean. In, in reading your book, I mean, uh, you have something with the alphabet. Uh, you already saw that, that you, I mean, uh, from, the, from when you very, were very little, you really have something with writing. But tell us about those uh, relationships with the alphabet, with letters. With, uh, I, I believe it's very taking in your book that you were two, three years old, and I believe your mom got you some present, and then you start really getting into letters. Could you share that with us, please? Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's something about letters. I have um, really bad memory. I have very bad visual memory. I have very bad, uh, I just have very bad memory. But when I was trying to write my memoir, I found that there's something about textures. Like if I closed my eyes and tried to remember how things felt, like my father's shirt under my hand, those textures brought me back into the past and allowed me to vividly recreate things from my childhood. And there was, 
for me, like the alphabet has always had a texture to it. Like when I am reading or when I'm writing, like part of the beauty of it is like, I don't know, I can just like feel the shapes of the letters with, with my mind in a way that's like very satisfying. And it's part of what, it's, it's part of the beauty of writing for me is like feeling the texture of those letters um, and feeling a sense of rootedness through conveying my experience through the printed word, through this ink, this physical substance that is ink. Uh, because I feel like for, for so many years, you know, in my self-destructive pursuit of my father, I was sort of burying my own feelings and my relationship to my own body in a way where I, where I just I just became disconnected from textures and from the physicality of, of experience. And writing for me provided a pathway back into my own body, back into my own feelings, back into those textures. And I think part of it is just like the, the fact that letters for me are that texture vehicle. This is like the most abstract conversation I've ever had about, <laughs> about writing, but I love it. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, I, I wonder if you could share with us, you decided to major in journalism and, uh, and you went to a top school, uh, USC. And, uh, but I mean, how much it was USC, how much is your passion, how much is your bringing up in both sides of the border? Uh, uh, I do believe that, uh, I mean, the next book you write about Stephen Miller, it, it, I believe you, you have a special sensitivity towards uh, these issues. So I wonder if you could share with us, I mean, your life in college, your decisions there, and how that, I mean, how much that helped you or how much your passion for writing for letters is helping you now? Well, I, I mean, USC is, just has a really amazing journalism program, and I got to do all kinds of really amazing internships at the Seattle Times, the Yakima Herald Republic. I got my first internship at the Wall Street Journal in Los Angeles. But every, like, as, as, as passionate as I was and am about journalism, it's my, it's my main passion. At the same time, I, I was just so curious about Mexico and my dad and and I knew in the back of my head that I eventually wanted to write a memoir about my father and so I was just looking for any opportunity that I could to to become a journalist in Mexico and that's what how I was able to jump there was a an opening for a correspondent in Mexico City while I was an intern at at the LA bureau and I was able to get that job um, but just fast forwarding to you know I moved back to the U.S. Uh, am I am I jumping ahead? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I moved I moved back to the U.S. and, and um, I, I was well. First of all, I lived in Mexico for four years, and I was covering. Um, it was just amazing. I mean, I, we were. I was covering. I got to meet like every different type of person that that you could possibly imagine. Like I was staying in these rural pueblos, and um, you know, interview interviewing campesinos about you know, how high coffee prices were leading them to stop planting uh, opium poppies because they wanted to stop interacting with the cartels. I was um, talking to maize producers about their battles with the multinational company Monsanto. Um, and at the same time, there was the whole other side of it where I was, uh, you know, going to like very fancy hotels and schmoozing with, uh, you know, C CEOs of coffee companies and I got to see the entire spectrum of humanity, and, and for that, I, I just feel so grateful. 
Um, but I, I missed my family and I wanted to move back to, to San Diego to be with them, especially after the loss of a very close friend of mine who I'm actually, I have a piece coming out about him to tomorrow. Um, he was a journalist and he was killed in Mexico City uh, in 2012. So it's been 10 years. Um, and I continue to, to be, grieve, to grieve him and, and to have a lot of pain around that. Um, but I moved back to the US in part because of that, in part because I wanted to be close to my family. And that's when I was just inundated with all of the changes that were happening to our immigration system, the family separations. I was one of the first reporters to cover uh, the Trump administration's practice of separating children from their asylum-seeking parents. The Trump administration kept saying that they were doing this to protect national security, that they were only cracking down on lawbreakers, on people who were sneaking into this country. But I knew from my conversations with parents who had presented legally at ports of entry that these, these were people who had not broken any laws. You know, they were, they were pursuing their legal right under national and international law to seek asylum. They were presenting at ports of entry and they were getting their children taken from them. Um, one man I spoke to was separated from his one-year-old toddler for eight months. And for a period of that time, he had no idea where his baby was. And so that, that is actually what led me to write this book about Stephen Miller, because I wanted to understand, well, if this isn't about national security, what is it about? And so I wanted to examine the man, the architect of these policies and, and try to understand what was really motivating him to do this. Thank you. I, I, I encourage all of you to read that book, uh, uh, Hate Monger, uh, Stephen Miller, uh, and the White Supremacy Agenda. Uh, it's, uh, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, Donald and the Trump. White Nationalist Agenda. It's, it's, a, it's a, 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 you told me you did about 150 interviews. So you really get into who Stephen, Stephen Miller is and, uh, and uh, how detrimental he could be for American society. I will put it that way. But I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about, I mean, who's Stephen Miller? I mean, how come he ended up hating so much migrants? And uh, uh, some, you talk about he, he, one of his relationships when he comes to college to Duke, Duke University. He's, uh, well, he's dating a Latina, uh, and uh, could you share that with all? Because it's very telling of someone who truly hates uh, immigrants, and, uh, and I will say Mexicanos and Mexicanas, and that he dated a Mexicana in Duke. Yeah, I mean, so Stephen Miller was Trump's speechwriter and senior advisor, one of his most trusted advisors. They had a very, had continued to have a very close relationship. I don't know to what extent his... Stephen Miller's uh, romantic relationship with this Latina freshman year of college shaped him because I was never able to get him to talk to me. Um, but I do. I did speak to some of his friends who thought that that was very strange. That you know he 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 was pining for this woman. He was with this woman for a little while, and it didn't work out. Uh, he was way more into her than she was into him, and. Some people speculate that that had something to do with his 
later obsession with with immigration issues, um, but I can't I can't actually confirm that. Um, but I mean, Stephen Miller. One of the reasons I was interested in him is because he grew up in Southern California in the 1990s, which is the same. You know, we're about the same age, and. This was a period, I don't know if, how many of you were here during that time, but it was the Governor Pete Wilson era when we saw uh, intense anti-immigrant hysteria. There were attacks on bilingual education. You know, I, I grew up in a school where it was against the rules to speak Spanish, was demonized to speak Spanish. Um, there were attacks on affirmative action. There were attacks on social services for children of undocumented immigrants. And... The governor was blaming everything on, you know, all of the state's fiscal problems on a quote-unquote invasion at the border. And so Stephen Miller grew up during this environment. He was going through some difficulties. His family was going through some financial difficulties. They lost a lot of money in their real estate um, business. And, and, and right around this time, Stephen Miller meets a man named David Horowitz, who... Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies as an anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant extremist. And David Horowitz took Stephen Miller, you know, under his wing. Like he he began to mentor him and and to cultivate him at a time that Stephen Miller was vulnerable. And that's one of the things that I examine in my book. Is is this is you know a classic case study in radicalization and in, in, in extremism and how somebody becomes fanatical in, in, a, in a very destructive way. And I chose to focus the book on his early life. I mean, the, the book is, is about his entire, his entire life up through when the pandemic started. Uh, but I really focused my, re my reporting resources on trying to figure out, like, why is, like, who, who is Stephen Miller? How did Stephen Miller become Stephen Miller? What were the early forces that shaped him during childhood and adolescence? Um, because, you know, most of the Trump era books uh, were are written by not people like me. You know, they're, they're written by older um, white men in D.C., veteran political reporters who've spent a lot of time in the White House. And I was an unusual pick for someone to write a, a major political biography on a, a top Trump administration of, official. And I, I wanted to, so I, I asked myself, like, what can I bring to the table that other people can't? And I realized that it was, it was examining his early life and his, his time in California and the forces that, that, that made him who he is today. Not, I mean, I spent a lot of time in DC and I, I spoke to a lot of people in the White House as well, but I really wanted to focus my resources on, on fig figuring out what makes Stephen Miller tick. I will uh, surely recommend you read the book. It's just amazing. There's a, a passage there, an anecdote that uh, basically uh, three very, I would say, conservative and anti-immigration men uh, in the U.S., they, they the one who really discover. Donald Trump, not the other way around. I'm, and I'm, I'm talking about Steve Bannon, uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, uh, the, who was uh, senator uh, representing Alabama, and then he, he was the, the first attorney general for uh, uh, President Trump, and Stephen Miller. Uh, 
Basically, when the Republican Party decided after Obama won re-election, the Republican Party wa was basically source searching and the Republican Party was thinking that they should become closer to Latinos, closer to migrants, because that was the future of the U.S. demography. Then Steve Bannon, he, he thought otherwise. Could you share that with us? Because I believe it's amazing because that really changed the history of this country. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're bringing that up because that there was that that was when the Republican Party decided, wow, like we really need to do a better job of outreach to Latino voters because we are going to lose if we don't take advantage of this critical voting block and and make appeals to that community. But Stephen Miller, um, he had read this analysis by. Sean Trendy in a Real Clear Politics, which talked about the, the quote-unquote missing white voter. Um, and it, there, he, he took from it this idea that the reason that they had lost so significantly in that election wasn't because they had failed to reach out to Hispanic and Latino voters. It was because, in his mind, because they hadn't appealed sufficiently to... Um, to, to, to white, to, to white middle-class, middle working-class people in the center of the country. And they decided that they were going to double down on ap making appeals to, to this population, specifically by using immigration as a culture war issue and, and creating this idea that everything that was wrong in these, white, this, these missing white voters' lives was as a result of immigration, as a result of Latinos, as a result of this boogeyman of the Mexican criminal and rapist. Um, and so that's how the white nationalist agenda really took root in the United States, was that conversation between Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, and Jeff Sessions at the Breitbart Embassy, where they looked over that analysis. I, I write about that dinner in my, in, in my book. Um, and they decided that they were going to find somebody, a demagogue, who was going to be the central figure in this white nationalist agenda. Yep, I mean, you're right. They discover... Trump, and they really made Trump to become a, a, a very successful anti-immigrant president. I mean, I, mean, uh, I believe, uh, Jean, that by your research, by being a wonderful research journalist, you really help us to understand part of Trumpism, which is very important, and, uh, and thank you for that. So you all have to read that book if you haven't read it, because it's wonderful. Jean, uh, I'm very worried about violence against journalists journalists in Mexico. And uh, what is your take on that? I mean, how uh, you live in Mexico City, I believe, for two years, writing for the three, yeah. three years. Three. Uh, and uh, so how was back then? Uh, did you ever feel threatened in Mexico as a journalist? Uh, they say, and I don't know if this is true, and this is something that Alfredo Corchado told me. He's a, a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. And I met him long, long ago in two, 2007. He is from El Paso, Texas, and he was covering uh, La Línea, which is, uh, I mean, the way they smuggle drugs from Ciudad Juarez to El Paso. And I believe, I mean, he, 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 he's been, uh, I mean, he, he had received some threats I invited, I was then teaching at Harvard University. I invited over to Harvard to give a talk. And when he was sharing with us, I mean, the threats he, he was receiving, we basically asked him to stay, and he stayed there for a year. So, and, and, but Alfredo Corchado says that having a blue passport, being an American, it is not the same. 
How did you feel in Mexico? And, 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 and what is your take on this extremely high violence against journalists yeah. in Mexico? Well, so when I, I was in Mexico City for three years, and then, a, then I spent a year in uh, Playa del Carmen finishing up my, my book. And most of the time, that, or at least in the, in the beginning, I felt safe. I, I didn't, I mean, the, I went to Mexico at a time when I was young and f thought that I was invincible. And I, I just didn't really think that much about, about safety issues. <laughs> um, this was, again, like during my self-destructive period where I thought, you know, I just didn't take very good care of myself. But, but I, 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 it's correct that U.S. correspondents are far less vulnerable in Mexico than, um, than local journalists. Because we, we just, I mean, there's this idea that, that, that cartels and, and criminals don't want to mess with US journalists because it could create um, like a more serious crackdown and, and have actual consequences. Um, my friend who, who, was, who was killed, we actually don't know how it happened. It remains a a mystery, and, and my piece about him is coming out tomorrow. His name was Mando Montaño. Um, that changed my feeling of safety because we, we never understood, we never got to the bottom of, of what happened. His body was found asphyxiated in an elevator shaft a few buildings from where we were living. He and I lived in the same building. He was an intern for the Associated Press at the time, and and uh, we didn't understand why he was in that building. We didn't understand how he got into that elevator shaft. We didn't understand if it was a hate crime because he was gay or if it was a random murder or if it was an accident or if it was related to his recent reporting on a police shooting at the airport. It, it, remains, it remains a real mystery. And that changed, that changed my feeling of safety. But I, I, I just, whenever we talk about the issue of safety for Mexico journalists, or for Mexicans, or for, for anyone in Mexico, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the U.S. role in creating these really unsafe conditions um, in Mexico. I think that there's this really destructive narrative in the U.S., which I internalized for many years, that, that Mexico is just this violent place that, you know, that there's just a bunch of violent people in Mexico and Mexico's corrupt and Mexico's got problems. And, and there's no recognition of the fact that, you know, U.S. guns are used in the vast majority of the crimes to kill people in Mexico. Mexico has some of the most strict gun laws in the entire world. They only have one gun store that's heavily protected by the military and you have to go through this really rigorous process to actually own a weapon in Mexico. So 70% of weapons retrieved at crime scenes in Mexico are traceable to the US. They were illegally smuggled and US gun manufacturers know that this is happening and they're not taking any steps to stop it. There's so many basic things that could be done to stop it and they don't because they're profiting off of mass bloodshed south of the border. Um, and so I, I'm actually, one of the things I, I wrote about recently was Mexico's lawsuit against some of these top gun manufacturers to try to hold them finally accountable for some of this behavior, uh, where they even market weapons directly to Mexicans. Um, they, they, they market weapons that they know will appeal 
to Mexican cartels. I don't think Mexican journalists or Mexican people will ever be safe until U.S. gun companies uh, become responsible <laughs> and, and, and until we in the United States make demands of our, our lawmakers that, that will regulate this, this terrible flow of, of weapons southbound. Um, and then obviously there's the, the fact that, you know, we've criminalized drug use in this country and, and the, the, the drug war that we just pour so many money and guns into is, is, is creating these unsafe conditions south of the border as well. So I really think that we need to challenge this idea that Mexico is a place with, with more violence or more corruption than the U.S. There, the, the problems south of the border are very tightly interwoven with failures of our lawmakers and failures of, of our companies. Let, let me share with you something uh, uh, that uh, I work for President Calderon and uh, President Calderon uh, visited President Obama in May 2010 and uh, we were visiting Washington in a state visit. And President Calderon was going to give a speech uh, in Congress next day and he was having a conversation with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton at the White House. And President Calderon told them, you know, tomorrow in my speech, because uh, he wanted to get some uh, ideas from them about his speech to Congress, and he told them, I'm going to say that we need to stop the arms flow into Mexico. Barack Obama, now I can tell, told Felipe, uh, if I were you, I would not talk about that. I mean, it's, uh, unfortunately, there's, I mean, Half of Congress is Republican, and they, and they will not take it well. Then Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, she said, no, I will do it. But I will say at the outset that you recognize the Second Amendment. And then you must say what, what you want to say. And uh, he did, did say so, and because you're right. It's, it's very frustrating. There's so many arms coming into Mexico. Uh, assault weapons coming into Mexico from the U.S. And of course, I mean, it's only the army sometimes can really face uh, these criminals. Criminals, Jean, you have you're a Latina, and uh, you've written a lot about Latinas and Latino power. Uh, two questions, uh, perhaps we almost done. One, do you think that demo that Latinos could help the Democrats in this coming election? And why so many Latinas and Latinos are voting for Mr. Trump or did vote for Mr. Trump? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, first of all, just the second part of your question, because I really do think that that's overblown. I, I think that Latinos in general are, are tending democratic because they understand that the Republican Party has recreated itself around demonization of Latinos and other people of color and, um, and not just demonization, but systematic targeting of our community through through deportation and through exclusionary immigration policies. Um, I do think that's, you know, there is a minority of Latinos, particularly Latino men, as that's what the polls show, that Latino men, uh, a minority of them are drawn to Trump and Trumpism. And I think that it's largely to, due to machismo and this, this um, American myth, myth of like the self-made man that Trump really, um, really exploits this idea that you don't need anybody else, you just need you and you just look out for yourself and everything's gonna be all right. And anyone who asks for help or who needs help is, is, 
they just suck in life. Like th this, this really simplistic view of, of looking at community and this destructive view of looking at community, I, I think that's part of, part of it. Um, and that's, you know, intrinsic in machismo. Um, but I think that overall, as we saw in California's recall, recent recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom, Latinos are going to play a critical role in saving democracy. Um, I, I mean, they, they, it depends on whether the Democrats deliver for them, for this community, for us. Um, you know, the, the Democrats have repeatedly promised to deliver on immigration reform, to provide a pathway to citizenship for 11 million undocumented people in this country. And while Latinos care about many issues outside of immigration, if, if there's one thing that kind of holds us together, all the different Latino communities in the United States, it's that we come from mixed status families. We, we all know or love somebody who could be impacted by deportation. And we care about this issue. We want immigration reform. We want a pathway to citizenship. And I don't think the Democrats realize how important this is to a majority of us. And one of the reasons that Latinos are less uh, inclined to vote is that sense of disillusionment, the sense that the Democrats are the same as the Republicans. They make promises uh, that sound nicer than what the Republicans say, but they don't actually deliver any results. And so Latinos are not going to come out to save the Democrats in the midterm elections or in the next general election unless the Democrats actually deliver on that issue. I think it's so critically important and it's not recognized. But we're already seeing a, a massive increase in turnout. I mean, Latinos for the first time, um, we, saw record, we saw record turnout in the 2020 elections. More than 54% of registered Latino voters showed up. That's the first time it's ever exceeded 50% of Latino registered voters. And, and so this is a trend that Democrats really need to, um, to, 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 to capitalize on by delivering actual results for this community. Um, and the other thing is, is representation. We need more and more Latinos um, running for office and being supported and running for office because Latinos right now don't see themselves represented in the halls of Congress. Um, they, don't, they don't feel that they're being represented and they're, and they're not being represented very, very much. You all have seen that now, I mean, the, the governor of Texas, he just decided to, 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 to stop the border and uh, because he decided that, uh, uh, well, he, he's campaigning, yeah, he's, he's seeking reelection, but, but Greg Abbott is some, someone that is very conservative. But the real difference between Texas and California, I would say is Latino power. Latinos are very powerful in Sacramento. Latinos are not powerful in Austin. So that's the big difference. So then, when you have someone in, in Sacramento, someone like Javier Becerra, who was attorney general, and uh, he suited the Trump administration more than 100 times. And that's what you don't have in Texas. Uh, so then Texas truly aligns with the Republican Party. But Texas has, as well as California, 38% of the population are Latinos there. And not only that, but Texas truly depends on Mexico. More than 40% of Texas uh, foreign trade is with Mexico. Only 9% of California foreign trade is with Mexico. But I, I will say it's about the Latino power. Well, thank you so much for sharing your personal stories and your professional stories. There's a word, a citizen journalist. 
Uh, I think you are a citizen journalist, and thank you for spending this evening with us. And, and, and Raphael, and, and I would like to echo that on that, uh, Mary. I believe that all of us here listening to you, Jean, uh, we praise you and we recognize you because you're very young and you have done a lot for continue the plurality of this country and for the freedom of this country. Thank you very much. And you're very brave. Thank you. And thank you all for being with us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.